I think we need to pray. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be those who stand on every promise of your word. Uh, When we hear a passage like that, uh, we are reminded, uh, perhaps more than usually, of our capacity to uh, faff about with your word. And we don't want to do that uh, this morning. Uh, We want to be honest and clear. And we we want our minds and hearts and spirits to be guided by your word so that we may stand safely and strongly upon it. Amen. Well, it's um, uh, a question that one could ask any, uh, any Sunday, but perhaps when there's the disincentive of snow around, perhaps it uh, is a particularly sharp question to ask. Why do you come to Holy Trinity? Uh, why do you come to Holy Trinity as opposed to other churches you could go to? Uh, I was at a meeting uh, this week in which there are a collection of local church leaders um, and representatives from churches. And I asked them why uh, they feel they belong with the kind of church that they go to. And it wasn't a formal session, but as far as I can tell from the reports that came back to me, the answer was generally that it was to do with the style of public worship. Maybe that's why you come to Holy Trinity, or if you're a visitor or indeed a returnee, Um, maybe that's why you go to the church you go to. But that's not the answer that St. Paul gives as to why those to whom he's writing uh, go to their church. What matters for St. Paul is the credibility of the church before the outside world. Last week, Colin Bearup was with us And um, for some reason, he didn't particularly want to preach on this passage. He wanted to preach on um, uh, a mission passage, so that's what I gave him. Um, I said, yes, that's absolutely fine, Colin. So it may be a bit of an effort to go back two weeks uh, to the uh, passage we looked at before from 1 Timothy. But let me do that with you. Paul has reminded his young friend and co-worker, Timothy. Oh, yes, um, I hear rustling. Uh, Page 1191 to begin with. Uh, Now, let's just go to page 1192, in fact, beginning of chapter 2. Timothy is reminded by Paul that uh, God wants all men, all people, to be saved, to be rescued. And he set out his own uh, priority, that he should be one leading in the teaching of the true faith to the Gentiles. It's there in verse 7. That context is vital for us to remember, because the same is true for any church. Why do you come to Trinity? Only later on, because I was in this passage, did I reflect on what Paul would have given for the answer, because this church, or that, is geared up to convey the true faith to the Gentiles, to those who don't yet believe. That's the context that drives everything that's going to be going on. Just outside the passage um, that uh, we had today, let's uh, go down to uh, verse 15. If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar 
and foundation of the truth. He wants to to teach the true faith to the Gentiles so that they come to a knowledge of the true God. That knowledge of the true God is buttressed by being in the church, which is the pillar and foundation. So everything that comes between the beginning of chapter 2 and the end of chapter uh, 3 is about the church in its credibility of doing its job, teaching the truth in a way that commends itself to the outside world. And so we come to the passage, and we're a bit distracted in the passage by our chapter divisions. There are no chapter divisions in the way Paul wrote, but because we're kind of naturally concerned for the way churches order themselves, we tend to start, that's why we started a new uh, paragraph uh, with chapter 3, and you'll see if you're following in the uh, church Bible, it says overseers and deacons. There's no, emph- no reason to suppose that that was Paul's ordering of the material. And in fact, it seems to me more likely that what we've got at the beginning in uh, verses uh, 8 through to uh, 10 is the ways that women and men should conduct themselves in public worship. Then, in verses uh, 11 through to chapter 3, 7, we've got the business of teaching. What are the qualifications not to teach and to teach? Because whatever an overseer means in chapter 3, we're told that the main qualification is that they should be able to teach. Then for the rest of the passage that we have, we've got two kinds of people under discussion, those who serve, deacons and either their wives or deaconesses. We're not quite sure of the translation. Uh, Paul would not necessarily have been thinking, okay, I've come to this business of ordination of bishops and overseers and priests and deacons and all of that stuff, so I'd better start a new chapter. I think it's much more likely, because of the way that teaching is a focus in this passage, that the bits that are about teaching about women from verse 11 and then uh, about men uh, from the beginning of chapter 3 belong together. So first let's look at that uh, section, that first section. The challenge, as always, in 1 Timothy comes to us, and probably in any letter, comes to us of this one-way conversation, this being on the phone and only hearing half of it. We know there are false teachers in the church, and we can tell from what Paul says that they're restricting the gospel, which should be for all men, all people, and they're misreading the gospel, which is about being saved. It it looks like the false teachers are marked in their personal lives by quarrelsome disputing, by anger, by drunkenness, and by greed. Now, I know you want me to get to verses 11 and 12, but try and be patient. Uh, Mark led our prayers earlier. Now, do we say that he led them wrongly because he forgot to ask us to stand up and lift up our hands? And yet that's precisely what the Bible says we're supposed to do in chapter 2 and verse 8. Now, I don't want to say he did anything wrong. But it means that from the start of this passage, we know that we're talking about Ephesus, where Timothy is, to whom Paul is writing. We don't, as a matter of fact, take everything this passage says and simply 
plaster it onto today's practice. If that's going to happen, that we should universalize it, that we should take it, take something from here and, and say it's general for now, then there's work to do. So, for example, we do say, looking at verse 8, that we should pray in ways that are holy, showing a holy life, that we shouldn't pray with anger in our hearts. But we may not believe that we have to pray in a particular physical posture. Or consider that passage later on. There's all kinds of instructions to the overseers and to the deacons about how to conduct their marriages. But as far as we know, neither Paul nor Timothy was married. Was it... uh, it was Mark, in fact, in, uh, at the beginning of our series in 1 Timothy, who pointed out that in Ephesus, the false teachers were knocking marriage as such. That's why Paul deals with marriage. What else can we learn about background? Well, it would seem that Paul is talking, at least in respect to the women, to the rich women, or to at least the high-status women. Maybe they were high-born, but not necessarily rich. So you can't have... In Ephesus, you can't have hair uh, that's braided with gold or pearls in it or with expensive clothes unless you've got a slave to do the hair braiding for you or you're rich and can afford the expensive clothes. Uh, Paul's probably saying, look, this is how I want men to pray. And now, thinking of women in Uh, public worship, this is how I want women to pray, to pray with the assurance of good deeds behind them, not not in terms of uh, physical stuff, just like the men might lift up holy hands, the women are not to be overdressed. Don't show off at public worship. Now, one of the problems of any letter is that, no reason to suppose you're as bad as I am, but I'm going to for a moment. you you may drift into thinking that any one place in the New Testament was pretty much like any other. So you can probably remember, because it's exciting, that Corinth was a really bad place. There was all kinds of loose living and wildness and excess went on in Corinth. And so that probably sticks in your mind, and you probably think, oh, that probably happened everywhere. But it didn't in Ephesus. As far as we can tell from archaeology, Ephesus seems to have been more like a damp day in Edinburgh. It's all severe and self-restrained and slightly Presbyterian. The kind of virtues that Paul commends in Ephesus to the Christians are already commended, we know from writings, to the women in Ephesus. Quietness, sobriety, self-control. And that meant that what was going on in Ed- Ephesus, at least in Edinburgh, Ephesus, <laughs> was for serious women, who were probably high, high status, to enter into the religious observation and religious responsibility in pagan worship. We know that that happened So it's quite likely that the burden of Paul's uh, message here, uh, yes, he's mentioning drunkenness, but he's attacking those in the church 
What he's, he, he's saying is, look, he wants to be able to say rather, look, you, you people over here who are coming from this very restrained pagan worship in Ephesus, especially you women, you can come over to the Christian faith and you will find your restrained pagan virtues accepted and even enhanced with real generosity, active charity, and a fellowship founded in the truth. It'll be enhanced. And at the same time, of course, he's therefore having to say, now you lot who are in the church, it would be jolly good if you actually conformed to at least the standard the pagans are up to, and you didn't get tied up in greed and in drunkenness, which is a problem in the church, he tells us in 1 Timothy. There's no reference to it in the place around, in Ephesus, because it was a restrained place. It did have the worship of a great goddess at the heart of it, so it was pagan, it was wrong, but it was actually a restrained place. And so as we head now into the the next section, about uh, uh, verses 11 and 12, I want to put a question to you. It's an evangelical church. We claim to live by scripture. But the danger is always that we take what we think from the world and put a, put a light dusting of scripture <laughs> over it. Some of you, when you heard that reading, may have thought, oh, what's he going to say? I hope he's going to say that women can preach. And maybe others said, I hope he's going to say that women can't preach. And I've got a question for you. If beyond all question of interpretation, this passage actually said, I, Paul, your friend and apostle, am clear from God that women should never, ever, ever, ever preach in a church when men are present, would that be enough? Or if he said the reverse, would that be enough? See, I'm standing here as a preacher but I want to find out what's going on in your head as we start. We will have to do some interpreting here. But if you've already made your mind up on some ground other than Scripture, then there is no point in hoping that Scripture is just going to come along this morning and tick the box that you have already decided upon. Now, there's another common reaction, and it's one I sympathize with a lot more knowing that some interpretation is needed, it's possible to throw up your hands and say, well, I'm just a simple person in the pew. If that lot up front can't agree, then I'm just going to carry on with what seems sensible to me. (coughs) Um, In order to head into this passage, I've got all the books out. And it reminded me that I've got a, a stretch about that long on my bookshelf about the role of men and women in worship. And it's all from those who honor the Bible. But they disagree. But that disagreement is not an excuse to say, well, forget Scripture. You can't expect anything from Scripture. I'm going to go with what the Guardian or the Telegraph says. All we can do is apply ourselves as best we can to the Bible and come to the best understanding we can manage. Even at the end of it, we have to say, as I say to you this morning... I may have got this wrong. If nothing else, it will teach us some humility. So, to the details then. We know that uh, women prayed and prophesied. You see, we've already broken one of these rules 
uh, this morning. It says in here that women are to be silent, and Alison did a, offered us a reading. We're going to interpret. We know that women prayed and they prophesied. We're not entirely sure what the prophecy was, but we know they did it. We also know that this is 1 Timothy, written to Ephesus, not 1 Corinthians, written to Corinth, which was a different city where Paul makes different points. We can't just unthinkingly pile up the the points from different uh, letters in Scripture uh, and and make of it a great pile uh, of points about roles in ministry, constructing them into a single argument. And I'm not going to be able to cover every argument from that shelf here. There's too much. And you may come across arguments that you think, well, he didn't say anything about that. I know I'm not going to be able to cover everything, but I'd be very happy to talk with you if there are issues that are on your mind. So, I want to sum up verses 11 through to uh, 15 by saying women should learn with a decent spirit. And I want to focus in these verses on three expressions that I think could be decisive as we try to make up our minds about what it's saying. They're not easy to interpret. First, in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And without echoes that are in our minds, probably, of other times when we've heard that word, we may say, well, that's obviously submission to men. But it doesn't always mean that. In Ephesians, we're told, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then men and women's roles are unpacked in Ephesians in relation to that specific sentence. There are times in the New Testament when this word, submission, does mean submitted to another person. And if that's what it means here, then that could be to men, or it could be to whoever is teaching at the time. There are some times, however, when in submission means not to a person, but with a submissive spirit. And that would fit in with the quietness that's there in verse 11, which is not silence, doesn't mean that. It means with a quiet, settled spirit, ready to learn. It's quite possible that pagan women, newly converted to the Christian faith, were bringing into the church their expectation from paganism about what they could do. It's possible. Similarly, whatever Paul meant, the one word he doesn't mean in verse 12 is silent, though that's the word as it's translated. Because as I say, we know that he allowed them to pray. We know he allowed them to prophesy. The problem is that we don't exactly know what that prophecy meant. The word in verse 12 isn't the same as the word in verse 11, but it might perhaps be translated to be still. It's a word about demeanor as much as it is about, about noise, whether you're making noise by talking as opposed to just having a quiet spirit, a still spirit. So I don't think we can decide on the basis of anything going on there. Secondly, He says, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And this generally, I reckon, remember I'm saying that, I reckon, favors the argument from those who would not allow women 
uh, to preach and teach in the local church. There's one meaning of the word here that's translated have authority over. There's one meaning of it that means to dominate or to domineer. And those in favor of a leaderly role for women have tended to seize on that meaning because it would then be a warning not against having authority as such but against abusing authority that you've been rightfully given. There is that meaning. The problem is that that meaning doesn't appear in Greek for a long time until after the New Testament has been written. It's more likely that it means exactly what it says it means in English. And if it means that, then Paul did quite clearly mean, I don't permit women to teach or to have authority. And so that tends to favour those who would deny the teaching role uh, to women. But the final expression, the third one I want to look at, is the reference uh, to the passage in Genesis, in verses 13 and 14. And because that's odd, we tend to slide over it. But this uh, expression would generally favour the argument from those who would allow women to teach. And let's begin with the issue of being deceived. First, uh, just to read it. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, time's not going to allow me to say much about the last verse in that chapter. Uh, What it is most likely to mean, incidentally, is not that you're only going to be saved as a woman if you bear a child. Bearing in mind, though, what was said earlier on about the ways in which the false teachers are diminishing the role of marriage, it's more likely to be that uh, women, if they are in their traditionally accepted roles and therefore involved in childbearing, will be saved. They don't have to avoid it, as the false teachers may have been saying, avoiding marriage. But of course, yes, you you are to fulfill your traditional roles, roles that would have been honored in Ephesus. But here, of course, you are to do it not as a pagan, but by continuing in faith, love, and holiness. Anyway, back to being deceived. Eve was deceived by the serpent. And Paul uses that as an argument why women should not teach. Now, uh, some of you are women, some of you will be here with women, and if you are here with uh, a woman today, just go home, or when you go home, ask them how they feel about the notion that they're not to teach because uh, they were deceived. The problem for those who say that Paul's practice in Ephesus of not allowing women to teach is decisive, determinative for all time, is this. It ends up depending on the idea that women are for all time more likely to be deceived. That they're somehow intrinsically deceivable. I cannot follow that. I don't think it's what Paul means. But that's why I don't take this practice of denying the teaching role as decisive for all time. But because it's odd and it springs up upon us and we kind of resist it in our spirits we tend to focus on what that uh, verse is saying. Verse 14. 
and we forget that verse 13 is there. If you want to make an argument that denies women a teaching place because they are more intrinsically deceivable, then you would use verse 14. There is no reason, if that's what Paul meant, that he would actually write down verse 13, but he did. So what was he saying? The point is surely that Adam, formed first, had a responsibility which he abdicated so that when deception was around, it led to Eve. There's something going on here around the abdication of male responsibility. And how clear is that in an Ephesian context? The false teachers are teaching wrongly, and they are male. They're abdicating the proper teaching responsibility. So women, and this appears later on in this very letter, are being led astray. They're getting caught up in gossip and speculation and disputes because the male teachers are getting it wrong. And that, to me, makes it clearer than ever that Paul's argument here is for Ephesus. I can't avoid a sense that if it isn't for Ephesus then we have to say that women are more likely still, mind then, but still to be deceived. And I'm not ready to say that. On balance then, and it has to be on balance, can't say too much, I am personally of the view that Paul would allow the ministry of women in teaching, provided it is subordinate to an overall local male leadership. And for that, he argues in other places. And that explains why we do what we do here, that women teach, but we hold uh, to the notion of males in overall uh, local responsibility for the church. And then let's kind of race through the rest, because you really wanted to know about that bit, I know. The men who have teaching responsibility, uh, if you look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, uh, heart on being an overseer, little a. Little a, if you look down, initially says she, and then you think you've looked at the wrong a. Yes, you have. It says, traditionally, bishop. um, We were talking about the Anglican Covenant, as Mark says, the New English Uh, The the New International Version was not translated uh, by Anglicans or Catholics, so they were very nervous of using the word bishop. So they had this word episkopos in Greek, um, and they thought, well, what should we call them? We would call them an overseer. An overseer pretty much catches it. um, An episkopos in uh, a Greek city could look after an important local gathering, uh, or he could be an inspector of drains. Um, You may care to say that to the bishop when you next see him. Uh, But an overseer just about captures it. It's a rather dull word, but it about captures it. They're supposed to be married, hospitable, because people would come to them, and they would stay with them. Remember, this is the era of house churches, so they'd need to have some space for visitors to come who may have teaching to offer. They'd themselves be able to teach. They were to be sober. Listen up, you false teachers. They're supposed to be well-reputed in raising a family, and they are not to be lovers of money. I suspect that, you see, that some of these pagans were coming over with money. 
from this high-born environment with their gold and their pearls, which they were supposed to wear at home but not in church. Well, how, how horrible it would seem if they ended up in a church where the leaders themselves were saying, what a terribly nice pearl you're wearing today, Mrs. Jones. You wouldn't like to leave it in, leave it in the collection, would you? That would be deeply unhelpful. They're not supposed to be after money. And the false teachers were, they were greedy and they were scornful of family life. And the deacons, similarly, their ministry, though, was a serving one and it would have been going from house to house. So whereas the, it's just an interestingly subtle detail, um, the, the overseer is not to be a lover of money, but the deacon isn't to pursue it going from house to house, deciding which house to go to according to which one's had money. They're not supposed to pursue it. In their travels, they're not listed as teaching. They don't have teaching responsibilities. But they are supposed to stay stable by having a hold of the deep truths of the faith, verse 9, with a clear conscience. And again, they're to be known in verse 12 for a good family life. In the same way, those who uh, work alongside them, either their wives or maybe it meant uh, uh, deaconesses in verse uh, 11, are not to be inclined as they go from house to house to take the news from the last house with them. They're not supposed to be gossips and malicious talkers. But let's wrap it up. Why is it all this way? Because God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the church is, according to verse 15, the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's all, all this stuff about women and men in their different roles is actually, in Paul's eyes, about our mission. We are to behave at least as well as the world behaves and then to go further. The way we behave is supposed to commend itself to outsiders. Now, again, I've used him once as an illustration, but I guess he's still in our minds. The Sunday after David Everett died, someone came to church who's not a believer, and quite clear that they are not a believer, but they came because of the quality of life that that man lived out. And the person involved said to me, what a model of Christian life he was. And that's, always, that's really where I want to end. What a model of Christian life he was. But when people see us together, it might be in our small groups, it might be in our conversation after a small group night, do we find them saying, what a model you are? That's what Paul cared about that we should be better than the world's models of behaving rightly and well to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know it takes a a while to get into the details of uh, the challenges that Scripture sometimes poses. And amongst those who honor the Bible, there will be those with different uh, responses. But we pray that we might all be fired with this desire that as a church, 
when we meet on Sundays, when we meet at prayer focus, when we meet in our small groups, when we meet in prayer triplets, when we meet in any of the organizations that meet in the week. Outsiders should look and should be driven to comment about the quality of life that is commended. So that the quality of that life might support and make ever more credible the truth as it is found in Jesus Christ. Lord of the church, but Lord of the world too. Until the day comes when he redeems us and lets the glory of his people be known. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.